is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. Shared classified documents, well, that ended up getting arrested. We'll go in-depth into a major break into those leaked Pentagon documents. California's economy could be headed south, and we don't mean for vacation. Would you rather keep your regular 9-to-5 job or become a social media influencer? Well, the answer for most might surprise you. We start, though, with the arrest in the case of those leaked Pentagon documents. Christian Trebert is a New York Times reporter on the Visual Investigations team. He's been tracking this situation along with that team. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. So I, I guess the, the, the question that comes to my mind and probably yours and probably everybody else's is this is a 21-year-old guy, right, who is with the Massachusetts National Guard uh, in, I guess, the Intelligence Division, but couldn't be a particularly high rank, not at 21. How would he get this information to begin with in order to disseminate it? Well, I think we're going to learn a lot about that in the coming days, weeks, if not months, right? Like from the internal investigation that's going on as well. I can't really speak to to, to what kind of uh, access he had. We just simply knew that um, the, the we found out that the the photos of the documents of the Intel documents were photographed uh, uh, in his uh, childhood home, uh, childhood home, and that's that's basically what we've been trying to do over the past um, days, really and figured it out this morning and arrived at the house before um, uh, law enforcement arrived there. So, yeah, to, to the question to what extent, you know, he had access, I think that's, that, that, that yet remains to be seen. What can you tell us about the guy himself? And also, di- didn't the authorities have some indication that uh, maybe it was him earlier on than we know? Um, they may have had, I, I'm not sure. Um, what we know about him is basically, you know, he was a was a gamer in a, a small group. He played a couple of different games, and um, over the weekend we started talking. We teamed up with uh, Eric Toller, who is a, uh, a prime investigator at the investigative group called Bellingcat, and he had figured out, you know, like it was a Minecraft Discord server where these documents were being shared, but actually that led back to another Discord server, and that Discord server led back to one called. Uh, Sock Shaker Central. This is a small group, a split away group of um, 20 to 30 gamers that, that, that were sharing racist themes and, you know, they were gun loving, they were into Christianity and God, and they were sharing with each other. And because that small group, he was basically seen there as the leader. And um, they sometimes, you know, got into like arguments maybe or they were discussing with each other. And he initially started typing out his intel briefing documents that he had access to um but eventually he was just like you guys don't care enough i'm just gonna share it so he took photos and started sharing them in the channel and from those tidbits of information we started narrowing down as well who could it be and this this uh uh chat room can you explain a little bit to us about uh because a lot of people know a lot about this particular uh site uh a lot of discord right Uh, a lot of people don't can you give a quick description of what it is sure so you have to imagine discord is a platform where you can uh, talk with each other in different groups basically and these groups can have different uh, channels like i can we can talk about los angeles or we talk about uh, maybe new york city or we talk about call of duty a war game or we talk about zomboid another another shooting game right and you can talk with each other by voice too just as you and me are doing right now but you can just say 
I want to have everyone in this channel that likes to play Call of Duty. We want to be on a voice server right now. And it's, it's particularly popular on the gamers because then they can talk with each other as they're gaming, right? And they can share different things too, just like you would on, let's say, WhatsApp. And um, there are many, many of these Discord servers, they're called, these groups, um, you know, focused on a wide variety of things. Uh, very quickly, uh, is this maybe an indication of a deeper problem that uh, maybe too many people have access to documents like this? I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's not up to me to decide, but um, I think it's definitely showing that, um, you know, uh, with, within this age where everyone has a mobile phone and maybe connected and is in arguments and fights and even think that maybe what they're sharing online is still in a closed group. Because beware, this is, this is like a closed group where it was initially shared, right? It's like 20, 30 people. No one else has access. But, you know, um, things spread around quickly online. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Christian uh, Trebeeren, New York Times reporter on the visual investigations team tracking uh, this story. California Senator Dianne Feinstein has asked to temporarily be replaced on the Judiciary Committee. It's because she's recovering from shingles. Now, this comes after two House Democrats called on her to resign because of her extended absence from Washington, D.C., David McEwen is a political analyst, political science professor at Sonoma State University. David, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, do you think that this is uh, the fact that she is now asking for this, and I'm putting it in quotes, temporary uh, replacement uh, on the Judiciary Committee? Do you think that perhaps she's signaling that she will leave the Senate and retire before the end of her term? You know, uh, Senator Feinstein has always consistently said that she will leave at the end of her term and or when she's ready. And there has been growing pressure, obviously, since she's missed over 90 days. But part of that is really an insider game about progressives trying to push forward a candidate in the form of Barbara Lee, who as could be a possible replacement if she were to resign in a short term period. And that's what you see with the members of Congress like Ro Khanna calling for her to resign. So there's this insider game, and there's another component, and that's about energizing the progressive base. But we don't think that Senator Feinstein is going to be leaving at any time in the near future. Could that change? Absolutely. And it will be something to watch because there will be mounting attention uh, to her health and her presence there in Washington, D.C. Has the votes that she's missed uh, made a difference? Well, if you look at the Senate Judiciary Committee, it's a critical committee. There have been uh, votes that have... Uh, not been taken because of the division on the Senate Judiciary Committee over Biden administration nominees. That committee is split to 10 Democrats and nine Republicans. So obviously not being there is an important element for moving those nominees forward. Have there been critical votes missed on that committee? Uh, not technically. There have been uh, hearings that have been pushed off, things that have been rescheduled. Uh, and in that sense, it has been an important element that she's not there. But it, we haven't seen, if you will, nominees not move forward based on the vote total. But we have seen is votes not called because of uh, her lack of presence there. You're a student of politics. What is it about politicians and not just politicians? I'm thinking uh, Ruth Ginsburg, right, as a Supreme Court uh, associate justice, who once they have power, once they have position, no matter no matter the fact that they've done a great deal of good throughout their lives and their careers, seem to want to cling on to the very, very last second. In the case of the uh, 
former associate justice of the Supreme Court. That ended up not being a very good thing, at least politically, if you happen to be a Democrat and if you happen to be more left of center in your politics. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is that we are seeing a generational change that's going on in the Democratic Party writ large uh, in terms of leaders nationally. And obviously, uh, President Biden's age will be an important component uh, of that discussion uh, when he runs for reelection next year. But obviously, as we see that generational change going on in California as well. Uh, it's one reason Senator Boxer left. Uh, she had been around for a while. Senator a fine sign when she goes is the generational change. And, and what does that next generation of Democrat look like, especially when you have a vice president from California, you have a governor from California who's built a national profile, and who comes next is hugely important. But also there's another element of this going on, and that is, look, uh, you saw former Speaker Pelosi come out and really defends uh, Dianne Feinstein yesterday, last night. And part of that is because of the element of, of being a woman. So you're a woman, uh, you've been around for a while, and, and it's the feeling of the former Speaker that uh, Dianne Feinstein is not being given her due. But she's never been given her due by the progressive base uh, in California because she's been a conservative Democrat. So there's this kind of insider war that's going on, this battle that's come to the fore over questions of, of age and capability. Uh, this is not the case of a California senator who didn't know what day it is or, uh, you know, th their hair would run orange when it would rain. That's Strom Thurmond, <laughs> uh, who ran back in the day uh, in 1948 for president and served right until the very end. That's not this situation at all. Uh, but if other Democrats come out like Rokana and call for her to step down, call for her to resign and, and you know, kind of let go of her illustrious career, uh, could things get ugly? Yeah, I mean, what comes next is important because, look, Barbara Lee is a progressive who's running. Rokana is the co-chair of her campaign. And Barbara Lee's 76. Uh, and so uh, if she served, would she only serve for a short time? Probably. Could she be appointed by the governor? Maybe there'd be a lot of pressure on Gavin Newsom to appoint her. And that would elevate progressives for a short period of time. Barbara Lee's going to have a difficult uh, road because, uh, you know, Adam Schiff has locked up a number of endorsements. He has kind of the Democratic establishment. He has Nancy Pelosi behind him. And Katie Porter can raise a lot of money. Uh, and, and has a high profile. So those two in California's top two systems slug it out. Do they move forward, leaving Barbara Lee behind? And that's to say nothing of a potential Republican who would enter the race and could, if Republicans turn out in California, move into that top two scenario. So for progressives, they're trying to game this out. It's that insider game. It's also an element of how California and the Democratic Party are changing in the state that's also deeply, deeply blue, but has not always been a harmonious family. All right. Thanks so much, uh, David McEwen, political analyst. Hey, would you like to be a social media influencer? No, this isn't a commercial, but <laughs> uh, it looks like fun. But more and more of them would rather work regular jobs. We'll talk to someone who made that switch. Right now, though, California's economy might be on shaky ground. That's a concern that we could see. Uh, there is a concern that we could see a turn soon. Lee Ohanian is an economics professor at UCLA. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to happy to contribute. So what are we talking about here? Uh, where's our economy going to head? And, and, and is it going to be really bad or just OK? Well, California's economy over the last year has been one of the major underperformers in the United States. To give you an idea of, of just what we're looking at, since last spring, the national economy has added about 4 million jobs. Uh, and California job creation has been almost zero during that period. We've had we've lost about 500,000 people from the state in the last two years. 
And a big problem that we're facing is that the cost of living here is very, very high. Housing prices, uh, the median home price uh, in California is now about $750,000. Hardly anyone who's not currently a homeowner in the state can afford to purchase a home. So we're losing population, we're losing jobs, um, and California is, I think, it's somewhat um, of a turning point in terms of where the state will ultimately head in the next few years. And wasn't it only the other year when we had a budget surplus and now we have a deficit? No, that's exactly right. The 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 uh, 2022-23 state budget was at a huge record of $300 billion. That works out to about $20,000 of state spending per household. And the forecast was for a nearly 100 um, $100 billion deficit uh, surplus. And now we're looking at about a $25 billion deficit uh, and deficits over the next three to four fiscal years. In fact, our state finances uh, are on such rocky ground that the state recently defaulted on a federal debt. Uh, the state had taken out a loan from the federal government because our unemployment insurance fund had dried up during the pandemic. So, so where did all that money go? I know I didn't take it. I doubt Rob did. I don't, I don't have it. <laughs> yeah. I... And, and presuming yeah. that you didn't, where did it go? Yeah, yeah. It's a very sad story. Our uh, our employment Devel development department has a uh, has a Jurassic Park era computer that was hacked to the tune of about thirty four billion dollars. And um, and so there was just there was thirty four billion dollars worth of fraud paid out. Um, so we're having to cover that. The state took out a loan. They've now defaulted on the loan and state businesses by federal law must now pay that loan back with higher federal unemployment insurance taxes, uh, probably for the next seven to eight years. All right. So we're going to have a mob with uh, pitchforks and, uh, and torches <laughs> and everything. Uh, who do they go after? Who, who should they look at first? Well, I think we need to have more accountability within government. We, Our government uh, at the state and local level spends an awful lot of money, um, and yet our schools continue to underperform. We're not getting the substantial investments in infrastructure we need. Um, so I think we really need to have a have a look at Sacramento and, and ask our politicians, hey, it's, it's really time to look at the bottom line and to make sure taxpayers are getting uh, are getting. Uh, the, the worth out of their tax dollars that are that they're spending. But is, is part of the problem, maybe a big part of the problem, that California relies perhaps more than most other states, maybe other states in total, on taxing you know people who are in higher income brackets. And if they start leaving the state or if Silicon Valley starts uh, their jobs start drying up, which has, of course, happened and is happening, isn't that also a large part of why there's no money? That's a huge problem. Um, about 50% of personal income tax payments within the state come from the top 1% of earners. And among that 500,000 people that we lost on net in the last couple of years, a large number of those people are very high earners. They've left uh, San Francisco in droves. They've left Los Angeles and other areas along the California coast. And they may be keeping a home here, but they're they're redefining their residence to states with lower tax rates. Uh, so that indeed is a major, major problem. All right. So very quickly uh, for people who are here, stay here and tough it out or get out. Uh, 
you know, California, our economy can turn around. We just need uh, we just need to create less expensive housing. We need to be a little bit more business friendly, and we need to be a little bit more family friendly with better schools and lower cost of living. It just takes some better economic policies that come from Sacramento. Another very quick question and a quicker answer, if we can, before we run out of time. How much time do we have left? It's kind of like this strikes me as a little bit like climate change. The clock is ticking. Do we have a lot of time to make the changes you just articulated? Uh, In my opinion, we don't. We really need to make those changes immediately, starting immediately. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, That is Lee Ohanian, economics professor at UCLA. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Being a social media influencer seems great. You post content, you get a bunch of followers, that get, and then get paid a lot of money to promote products. Actually, that's not a bad idea. Let me no. see if I can find something I can do. <laughs> uh, but it's not as easy, apparently, and stress-free as it might appear. Some people actually are even giving up being an influencer. Anna Russett is a former social media influencer who has now found what people call a regular job. Anna, thanks for being with us. Hi, yeah, thank you for having me. So what were you influencing? How long were you doing it? And what are you doing now? (laughs) So I actually started way back in 2009. Um, I started a YouTube channel. I, at the time, was really just kind of sharing fun little bits of my life. Um, And then over the years saw just like the power of social media and saw my subscribers start to go up um, and started to take it a little bit more seriously. I would just share things about my life um, in the Midwest, lived in Chicago um, and would just kind of, yeah, share, share what things I cared about at the time. I started to work with brands and promote things, um, which was kind of cool at the time. It was kind of crazy that I could just like post one thing and it would cover my rent for the month. That was pretty wild. But over time, you know, it's just like it's a little unstable. Um, it's a bit like freelancing, like independent contractor work. And you never really know when your next thing is going to come. And uh, eventually I transitioned into uh, tech where I now work at YouTube um, in the product team and help uh, bring products to market. So wh- how stressful does it get if you depend on, as you call it, contract-like work to promote something? So if you're really good at it, uh, one would imagine, I think people who don't do it imagine that, well, if you're really good at it, the the uh, companies line up at your door. Hey, uh, yeah. uh, sponsor my thing next. Uh, how does it really work? Well, I think you actually have to balance that because if you do too many brand deals at once, you're kind of inundating your followers with advertisements and they didn't necessarily sign up for that. You know, they wanted to see your life or whatever thing you were talking about. So it's actually a like, you know, it has to be a balance. You can't take everything and you can you can't also promote everything that shows up at your door either. You'll kind of look like a, you're a shill. You have to be really particular about which deals you work with, which is most authentic to your brand. Um, and, you know, you're not you don't always have that much of a say of how you share that brand's information. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's it gets a little bit more complicated um, with how it can go. You know, I, I was going to start off this question by saying uh, I don't mean to pry, but I would be lying. Uh, <laughs> so let me ask you, what kind of money are we talking about when you were a social media influencer? Mm-hmm. What sorts of money are we talking about? <laughs> Well, like the one year that I actually tried to do it, like, you know, full time, I think I made at most 
like sixty thousand dollars in the year. And that's um, for and that's for basically doing one or two posts on a particular product. Is that it? So that is actually like over the course of a whole year, like doing multiple posts. Um, I could do you know one Instagram post for maybe like a thousand or two thousand dollars. And what was the thing that made you decide that this is not working for me anymore and I can't do it? I want a regular job. I think it just, it wasn't as fulfilling for me at the time. Um, and I, I think I wanted, honestly, I wanted some more stability, um, especially too. I was doing this in 2019 um, before the pandemic hit. And once the pandemic hit, I was like, oh my gosh, how nice would it be to like have benefits and not have to pay for my health insurance and to have a like a corporate job where a boss matches my 401k contribution like that just like you know is unheard of when you're an influencer especially when you're like still like trying to make it as an influencer um and so i think like i just kind of realized i wanted to try something else i also really liked the idea of being able to kind of log off at the end of the day you know when you're an influencer especially like when you're kind of like you're selling yourself and it doesn't end. Like you have to constantly be thinking about how to engage your audience and what to say next to them. And what I like about my job now is that I, you know, I, I turn up, you know, in the morning and then when it's time to go, I close my laptop and I do whatever I want to do. What advice, and what advice would you give to a youngster who might be interested in becoming a social media influencer? What would you tell them? I would say definitely try to have some other form of income while you're doing that um, and and definitely develop the skills within influencing so that you could potentially pivot if you want to. There's a lot of skills that you can you know work on while being an influencer. You're you know writing copy, you're taking your own photos, um, you're editing, you're doing content strategy. These are all things that a lot of brands and companies need these days that you can always pivot to if you know how to package it up correctly. Well, I can share with you now, uh, I'm going to break this news on the air, that Charles and I are going to become social media influencers. And the uh, product that we're going to promote is money. (laughs) So give us money and we'll show you what cool things you can do with it. How does that sound? Does that sound like a good idea? But but, but, an important point, he doesn't mean that, folks. (laughs) He does not mean that. Being sarcastic. He does not mean that. Thank you for joining us. Anna Russett, a former uh, social media influencer, has found a regular job working, uh, ironically, in tech, but not as an influencer anymore. When we come back, uh, the life, legacy, and influence of a fashion icon. The fashion world mourning the death of Mary Quant at the age of 93. She's the visionary designer whose colorful miniskirts epitomized London in the 1960s, influenced youth culture around the world. And with us to talk about her influence is Mark Borkowski, a renowned uh, publicist, author, and pop culture expert based in London. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very much welcome. So the miniskirt. Now, there is some uh, confusion, uh, you know, some claims that she invented the miniskirt or she just popularized it. Which is the case? Well, I think that there's there's I think that most people um, outside of fashion who understand culture would say that it was owned by Mary Quant. I mean, if we if we think about the time that she blew into the scene, I mean, London was a dank, drab place suffering from the bombing and the blitz of the Second World War. And it was a capital in search of new energy. And Quant, Quant had it. And she had the zeitgeist. She knew that a young generation wanted to break out of that history and wanted to live differently from their parents. 
and uh, she knew that attitude needed a new style, a new wardrobe. And so she she brought a youthful approach. And what fascinates me as, as a PR man was her approach to marketing and branding and how she built that as a with a wide range of ideas and to become that tra- trailblazer um, who introduced all these new styles um, and was the sort of the, the person who really put swinging London on the map. So uh, I think Quant and the Beatles together were such a powerful force right at the same time so so uh, what is the or what was that particular genius she had i mean she wasn't necessarily a great designer or great uh in any one particular area right i mean but what was it that when put all together made her I, I think she, she pioneered the idea of fashion being accessible to young women i mean she created designs that were affordable and accessible making the brand popular with with young people. She 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 knew that young people couldn't afford that high end fashion, and so she developed um, you know a style of are you talking about the bright colours, the playful graphics in her advertising campaign, which stood outside what was happening at the time in terms of traditional marketing techniques. So she was a she was an original disruptor, uh, which you know we, we we talk about the tech companies disrupting now. But what her designs had was embodied a youthful spirit that made fashion relatable to young people. We want to bring in uh, Kavita Shanae, a lifestyle expert, into the conversation. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, uh, you know, he talks about uh, Disruptor. So how much of a disruption was uh, Mary Quant's designs, uh, the miniskirt, uh, other fashions that she uh, kind of pioneered and got out there? You know, it's funny. My mom actually used to wear mini shirts. I'm not going to age myself, but I was born in the 80s, and my mom used to wear all these mini skirts with these high boots. And my dad, till this day, will tell anyone that wants to know how they fell in love that when he saw her in the mini skirt and the high boots, that was it. He fell in love with her. <laughs> you know, so I, I love this. I love this. I love her memory. You know, it's carried on to me. You know, I love wearing a mini skirt. And I feel like if you've got it, flaunt it, show your legs off, you know, I mean, why not? You know, I, again, I was born in the eighties. A lot of times I'm wearing minis and people will say, why don't you ever, you know, try a long dress? Like I don't want to cover my legs. I want to show them off (laughs) as long as I can. Mark, (laughs) Mark, was, was she, uh, automatically embraced, uh, maybe by young people, but certainly I would think not, uh, you know, older folks, how long did it take her to really establish herself as the force that she became? Well, I think the, the, the 60s were very fast moving at that time. And, um, you know, one of the classic things she did was to create the Daisy doll, which is a miniature version of herself, which became a very popular tool. Um, that Bob haircut. Um, but I think that she also um, upset people at the time because she was using synthetic fabrics from PVC. Um, and it, it was futuristic. And so therefore it was leapt upon. Of course, you know, it didn't have the sort of communication techniques we have now with, 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 with Instagram and uh, TikTok, um, but it was pretty fast. And of course, the Beatles providing the soundtrack, she was creating the, the, the designs um, this was a real generational gap, and it empowered young women for the first time to, to as I said, to, to flaunt their bodies, to be empowered with their bodies. So it took off pretty quickly via word of mouth, 
but our advertising and our marketing techniques were so innovative that it crashed in and it drove her brand. And look, we're talking about it now. And God bless that she had a, a great life. But even if you think of her hair and her sunglasses, even the great fashionistas um, that we talk now were still mimicking uh, many of many of her of her, of her, of her ways. So it's it, it was so so different that it, it took off pretty quickly. Kavita, uh, let me ask you, uh, was this lightning in a bottle? Is there anybody in the fashion world today who is having as much of an influential change on fashion as uh, Mary Quant did? No way. And if they were, I would not say it today. <laughs> this is about her. She's a visionary. She's innovative. I mean, you talk about the bob hairstyle that she pioneered, you know, the hot pants, the waterproof mascara, all of it. You know, it, it's just so cutting edge. And like you guys were just talking about, she's so modern, and I really can't think of anyone that even stands a candle to her today. Do you guys have anyone in mind? Uh, no, not that I can think of. You know, I was going to say it's a very interesting uh, point uh, for, for both of you. Uh, America's first introduction to uh, the miniskirt in a big way was on a TV show called Star Trek. You may have heard of it back in the 60s because <laughs> the uh, female crew members wore these miniskirts. Now, some people looking back at the show have claimed, well, that's so sexist back then. They're making the women wear these short miniskirts while the men wear dignified pants. But from the actresses and actors who appeared on the show at the time, it was a different world. And Michelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, wrote about wearing those miniskirt costumes. She wrote, uh, contrary to what many may think today, no one really saw it as demeaning back then. In fact, the miniskirt was a symbol of sexual liberation. And I think that's something that both of you have kind of brought up here. Absolutely. I mean, I get it, right? Women look great in pants, but also that those outfits, I remember Star Trek. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Right, guys? I mean, everybody wanted to wear those outfits. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, Kavita Shanae, lifestyle expert. Also, uh, Mark uh, Borkowski, uh, publicist and author and pop culture expert in uh, London. Well, that's going to do it for today's uh, In-Depth. Charles and I were not wearing mini skirts. Probably will not because, you know, if you've got it, flaunt it. But if you don't got it, don't well, I haven't stood up yet. You don't really know. Well, I don't really know. So, And now I'm quite afraid to look over there. So there is a mystery. More in-depth tomorrow at 1 p.m.